0: I just finished a, a series called Weeping in the Heart of God, Weeping in the Heart of God, and it was really looking at all these different passages in Scripture where, where we see tears, and we see, in particular, God's response to those tears. Um, this week, I'm beginning a new sermon series, and this sermon series is really a continuation of one that I've been doing for the last few years that's called Now That's a Good Question, Now That's a Good Question. And what I'm really doing is I'm focusing in on very, various passages throughout Scripture where either God or Jesus asks a question. And one of the things we know is that God is omniscient. He knows everything, and therefore, he's not asking questions because he's missing information. Uh, he's asking questions for another reason. And uh, what I would argue that he is doing is that he is oftentimes actually, through his question, trying to get us to acknowledge something or to discover something For ourselves. And so today we're going to be looking at Genesis chapter 3, which is where actually there's five different questions that are asked, but we're going to be focusing on one. Before we do that, let me take a moment and let's pray. Father, I thank you for each of the different um, souls that is here in this room this morning. Father, um, as we look right and left and in front of us and behind us and we see these people, Father, I pray that we are all created in your image. And because we're created in your image, we have dignity that surpasses any imagination that we might conceive of, Father. That we're standing in the presence of eternal beings who are created in your image, the eternal God. And so, Father, whether or not those people pull for Georgia or Alabama or vote Democrat or Republican, uh, or if they get their information on Instagram or Facebook or wherever it is, Father... All that is irrelevant to me, Father. What is relevant is that we're created in your image and that we are worthy of respect. And so, Father, I pray that we would be people who are known for the respect and the dignity that we show to all women and to all men. Father, let us be uh, a people here at Seven Hills Fellowship who are known for humility and kindness and love and dignity towards all others. Pray all these things now in the name of your Son Jesus Christ, Amen. So I went to school, graduate school, in St. Louis, Missouri, um, Covenant Theological Seminary. Chris and I got married and uh, moved up there together. And one of the housing options that became available to us was uh, to live in a an amazing mansion that was about a mile from Covenant Seminary. And uh, basically, the people that owned it were multi 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 millionaires so I could go into it but uh, I think in their house um, there were 13 uh, different bedrooms there were any number of suites they had gold-plated fixtures they had three original Salvador Dalis one of which sat in their coat closet on the ground seriously it was just an amazing amazing home and we lived in um, a garage apartment and, uh, and so their garage was this giant multi-car garage. And so essentially, we got to live there for free. Krista would do housework for them. I would do yard work. But we got to park in the very last slot in their garage. And so oftentimes, I would have a, an evening class. And um, so I'd get home late, like at 9.30 at night. I'd be pitch black outside. I'd be tired. I'd you know pull in, and I would go into my parking slot. And so I'd pull into the, you know, my parking slot. But I had to walk the length of their giant parking garage. And um, so early on, after Chris and I were married, you know, I'd pull in there and park, and I'd be excited to get home and see her. I'm sure she had, you know, been missing me during the day. and uh, But unfortunately, I had to walk through the darkness of this garage because the light switch, unfortunately, was on the far side of it. So I'd park the car, turn off the car, and I'd start walking through the garage. And Krista, who is, I don't know how well any of you know her, is a little bit of a practical joker, for the first several months of our marriage would frequently find a place to hide in the garage behind one of their cars, behind a trash can, behind one of the pillars, and she would jump out and scare me. And I, I of course, have you seen the commercial? There's a commercial, like it's an insurance commercial or something, where a guy comes home and they're throwing a a surprise party for him and he shrieks or whatever. I, I do that. I don't know why. I just sort of... I, it's not very manly, but I do it anyway. So, Chrissy would jump out and scare me to death, and I would yell. And so, you know, and she would hide in all these different places. So, sometimes it would be in the garage, sometimes it would be in the, the walkway on the way up to our apartment. Every now and then, she'd hide in the apartment, you know what I mean? Hide in a closet, and I'd go to put my coat away, and she'd jump out and scare me. So, but what would happen is eventually I got used to it. And so, if I walked through the garage and she wasn't in the garage, and up the stairs, she wasn't in the stairs, and into our apartment. And if I sat in the apartment, she got to the point where she would hide in the apartment. And since I knew what she was doing, I just was like, you know what? I'm not even going to look for her. And so I would just go sit on the couch, and I would turn on the TV, and she'd come out like seven or eight minutes later kind of miffed that I didn't come looking for her. So today we're reading a story about hiding. And whereas our little story of hiding, Krista hiding and scaring me, is kind of for fun This story of hiding is really rooted in fear. And so if you will, let's read Genesis chapter three, verses one through 13. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, did God actually say you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, we may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said, you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it lest you die. The man said, the woman whom you gave to be with me, she gave me the fruit of the tree, and I ate. Then the Lord God said to the woman, what is this you have done? The woman said, the serpent deceived me, and I ate. Let me just start off by saying that there is a lot, lot, lot here in this passage. We're not even going to be able to cover any number of different things, but what we're going to do is we're going to focus primarily on this one thing. What do we see about the story of Adam and Eve and their temptation and their eventual fall? There are actually five questions. Again, the this, this sermon uh, series is now that's a good question. There are actually five questions in this narrative. The first question is posed by Satan to Eve, where he says this, did God actually say, you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? In other words, Satan's like al- almost sort of with this quizzical, did God actually say that? The other four questions are asked not by Satan, but by God. God asks Adam and Eve the following questions. Who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? What is this that you have done? And then his last question that he asks them is, where are you? And it's this last question, where are you, that we're going to focus on today. As always, God's questions have a deeper purpose than just fact-finding, as I mentioned earlier. He's trying to reveal something to Adam and to Eve and, and, and to us as well. I'm going to argue that what his question reveals is that they're separated from one another, that they're experiencing relational disintegration, that they're separated from themselves, that there's psychological disintegration. It's psychological, but it's also physical. And then finally, that they're separated from God, that there's uh, a spiritual disintegration that occurs because of sin. So first point, where are you? Relational disintegration, separated from one another. Look at starting in verse 7. Then the eyes of both were opened. And they knew they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. The man said, the woman whom you gave to be with me, she gave me fruit of the tree, and I ate. Then the Lord God said to the woman, what is this that you've done? The woman said, the serpent deceived me, and I ate. And then this last uh, verse here is, your desire shall be contrary to your husband, but he shall rule over you. Genesis chapter 2 ends with God bringing Eve to Adam. If you guys remember that story. It reads like this, Then at last, this at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. So after living and working alone for some time, and after Adam had seen each of the other animals with their partners, God creates Eve And Adam is absolutely undone. When God presents Eve to Adam, it's like that moment in a wedding when the groom waits at the front of the church after the bridesmaids have all entered. And then that first song stops, the new song begins, the back doors open, revealing the bride in her wedding gown. I've witnessed many young men reduced to tears at that moment as they witnessed the beauty of their wife. That's this moment for Adam. She is perfect, literally perfect. And we're told the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. Adam and Eve experienced perfect intimacy and vulnerability. They hid nothing from one another, and they loved and accepted each other perfectly. That was the way it was supposed to be. But then in verse 7, after they've sinned, darkness fills the sky. We read in verse seven, then the eyes of both were opened and they knew that they were naked and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. So suddenly, after all of this wonderful news and this wonderful intimacy and wonderful vulnerability, they're hiding from one another. Their shameless and fearless bliss has somehow been corrupted. Sin has created shame and an awareness of vulnerability and as a result, they hide themselves from one another. And we've been using fig leaves ourselves ever since. We hide our true selves from everyone, but especially we hide from those with whom we're supposed to be the most vulnerable. We hide behind makeup. We hide behind big trucks. We hide behind titles and tattoos. We hide behind fine clothing. We hide behind silence and we hide behind questions we hide from one another behind plastic surgery and the fear that we're not beautiful enough we hide behind muscles built in the gym over a lifetime and the fear that someone will find out that we actually feel very very weak and very very insufficient we hide because we feel like we're too much or we hide because we feel like we're not enough the question is where are you where are you And the answer is, you're separated from the ones that you love the most. It's part of the fall. And unfortunately, there's actually more separation. There's more disintegration. The result of Adam and Eve's sin is not only that they hide from one another, they also begin to blame one another. That's a little bit more of this relational disintegration. Look at verse 12. Verse 12 says, The man said, The woman whom you gave to be with me, she gave me Fruit of the tree and I ate. Then the Lord God said to the woman, What is this that you have done? The woman said, The serpent deceived me and I ate. So notice who Adam blames first. He's responding to God, so God asks him, What have you done? And and Adam says, This, the woman you gave me, right? And so in Adam's newfound sinfulness, he begins by blaming God. I'm not sure how that turned out for him. Essentially he says, It's actually your fault. Then after blaming God, he blames Eve, the woman you gave to be with me. She gave me fruit of the tree and I ate. So instead of taking responsibility for his own actions, Adam desperately tries to shift the blame onto someone else, even onto the two people who actually love him most. Eve then, unfortunately, gets up in the act. Her response to God is to blame the serpent for her disobedience. And all these years later, each of us engages in exactly the same way. It's always someone else's fault. Where are you? Hiding behind fig leaves and blaming others for our sin. Why did you fail the test? There's no mention of the 30 hours playing Call of Duty last week. Instead, you tell your parents that your professor just isn't a very good teacher. Why did you get fired? You don't mention that you were chronically late and you spent hours on social media while at the office. Instead, you say that your boss, for some reason, just doesn't like you very much. Why did you have an online affair? My husband is so boring. Why pornography? My wife doesn't respect me. Why the divorce? We just grew apart. Where are we? We're blaming one another for our sin. There's at least one more way in this passage that we see sin separating us relationally, that we see our relational disintegration. Verse 16 of chapter 3 gives us one more effect of sin. There's this cryptic verse, your desire shall be contrary to your husband, but he shall rule over you. God directs this statement explicitly to Eve, and in light of this effect of sin, it shows that this effect of sin targets marriage very specifically. This verse has been difficult to interpret, but one thing we know for sure is that it at least means that in what was supposed to be the safest and the most vulnerable of all human relationships, there now exists conflict, right? And if you've never been married before, you may just want to ask one of your married friends whether or not this is true. Someone once said it's hard to fight a world war when you're fighting a civil war, and unfortunately, what we find here is that one of the, the causes or the, the symptoms of the fall is that we now, as married people, exist in a state of civil war. Where are you? Where are you, Adam and Eve? Hiding, blaming, and fighting with those that we love the most. So as a result of sin, we experience separation from one another or relational disintegration. And now we'll look at the second impact of sin, psychological disintegration. Beginning in verse 16, to the woman, he said, I will surely multiply your pain and childbearing. In pain, you shall bring forth children. And to Adam, he said, because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain, you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles, it shall bring forth for you and you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face, you shall eat bread till you return to the ground. For out of it you were taken, for you were dust, and to dust you shall return. In the same way that sin yields deep relational brokenness, sin also creates psychological brokenness. We experience internal disintegration. We've already seen Adam and Eve blaming God, blaming one another, and blaming Satan. It's not too far of a stretch to assume that they don't even realize that that's what they're doing. And now in verse 16, we see even more disintegration. Eve is created to partner with Adam in bringing order to chaos, and instead their relationship itself becomes a source of chaos. Eve is also created for the miraculous vocation of bringing life into being. What was supposed to be a joy is now only accomplished in pain. Several theologians that I read extended this suffering not only to the act of childbirth, but to the entirety of child-rearing. A process that was supposed to be filled with satisfaction and pleasure is now instead filled with deep sorrow and lifelong pain. Where are you, Eve, separated from my true self? What about Adam? Does he experience disintegration too? Absolutely. Verse 16 not only talks about Eve desiring her husband, but it also talks about Adam ruling over her. Again, this is in the context of the curse of the fall, so this ruling is not good. It's not the way it was supposed to be. Whatever his vocation in the context of marriage was supposed to be, this isn't it. Instead of a powerful partnership, a power play now exists. Instead of engaging with strength and love, offering life and growth, Adam now engages either in fear or in pride. If you don't believe that's true, again, Ask some other men around you. Ask some women. Verse 17 and 18, we continue to read, and to Adam he said, cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you, and you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread. In the same way that child-rearing was supposed to be a joy and a source of deep satisfaction for Eve, work was supposed to be similar for Adam, but instead now we see Adam's vocation was going to be filled with pain, thorns, thistles, and by the sweat of his face. In other words, instead of work being a pleasure, it's now toil and misery. And while I do think there's some particularity in which men and women are both uniquely impacted by sin, I think it's helpful to note here more broadly that sin has impacted humanity by corrupting us psychologically. It's just true for all human beings. If you don't at times feel as though something is wrong with you, then something is wrong with you. 80% of all people hate their job. That's according to some research that's a little old now, but it's not surprising. According to the National Alliance on Mental Illness, borderline personality and bipolar disorder impact 4% of American adults. Anxiety and depression impact 27% of adults in America. OCD and PTSD affect another 5% of American adults. One out of 10 Americans will struggle with an eating disorder at some point in their lives. Suicide is the second leading cause of death among people to ages 10 to 34. Where are you, Adam? Where are you, Eve? The answer is very, very broken. We're separated from one another, relational disintegration. We're separated from ourselves, psychological disintegration. And then we also see in chapter 3 that it's not just psychological disintegration or separation, but it's physical as well. Look at verse 19. Verse 19, by the sweat of your face you shall eat bread till you return to the ground, for out of it you were taken, for you are dust, and to dust you shall return. So far, each of these impacts of sin, relational and psychological, seem extremely obvious. And this one, physical disintegration, is no different. It's especially evident, at least when you hit 40. Some of us look in the mirror, and we see gray hair, we see no hair, we see ear hair and nose hair. We see crow's feet, sunspots, laugh lines, and various skin folds. Joints become arthritic. Sometimes they have to be repaired or even replaced. Last February, I was diagnosed with cancer. Off the top of my head, I can think of another five people in my immediate relational network who were also diagnosed with cancer within that last year. By this point, we've all known people who have lost loved ones to COVID, One out of four Americans will die from some form of heart disease. One in three people will die from some form of Alzheimer's or with dementia. To quote C.S. Lewis in The Weight of Glory, 100% of us die, and that percentage cannot be increased. One of the saddest lines in all of Scripture is verse 19, for you are dust, and to dust you shall return. God brought forth our lives out of the dust, but because of sin we return to the dust. I've mentioned my long-term accountability group in here before. We've been together now for 29 years. We began our friendship playing soccer at college, and at the time, we were fast, and we were strong, and we felt indomitable. Some of you guys in the room can still kind of remember this, or you're there. Over the years, my group of buddies, we've talked through breakups, and we've talked through engagements, and we've talked through weddings, and we've talked through jobs, and we've talked about having kids and raising those kids. There are actually 17 children between the five of us, ages 23 to 13. So as you can imagine, there's been a lot to discuss around the topic of parenting. But over the last several years, one topic, a new topic, has kind of risen to the fore, and it's the topic of what I call mortality. It's us as 49-year-olds, Or 48 year olds, sort of feeling our bodies beginning to break down. There's a lot of gray hair among us. Most of us wear reading glasses. When we get together, we sit around and lament our litany of physical ailments and the attending treatments. In some other context, I could tell you a few of them and we could have a very good laugh together. Suffice it to say that we are progressively falling apart, we're returning to dust where are you? We are dying. We are separated relationally. We're disintegrating relationally. We're disintegrating psychologically. We're disintegrating physically. But unfortunately, that is not all. That's not the only effect of Adam and Eve's sin. We also experience spiritual separation from God, spiritual disintegration. Look at verse 8. Verse eight says this, and they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. So far, we've seen the impact of sin upon humanity has been relational. It's so sad to see that's one of the first places you see sin impacting humanity, that it impacts our relationships. We see that it's also been psychological it's been physical, but here we see the spiritual impact of sin, separation from God. This particular separation from God actually began before Adam and Eve ate of the forbidden fruit. If you remember, Satan began his temptation with the question, did God really say? He was tempting Eve to doubt God's goodness. He was tempting Eve to believe that God was holding out on her. Eventually, verse 6 tells us that Eve gave in because the woman saw that the tree was good for food, that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise. She took of its fruit and ate. It would be very interesting to delve into each of those three different factors. Maybe we'll do that in a sermon someday. Function, beauty, and wisdom. I'm pretty sure that what ultimately uh, means is that What Eve was doing is she was going to determine for herself what was right and what was wrong and what was good and bad in this world. Part of what we see as uh, we look at her is that she was setting herself up on the throne. We see her hiding from God. All of us, as a response, end up hiding from God as well. We don't believe that he is good we don't believe that he can be trusted and as a result we hide from him one of the things that we see in scripture is that when jesus came he came in order to undo that spiritual separation from god he came to woo us back into a relationship with his father If you remember, Jesus told a story that we sometimes refer to as the story of the prodigal son, and it really is a story about these two brothers and a father, and what happens is there's this younger brother, and this younger brother or younger son goes to his father and basically says, hey, I want all of your stuff, but I don't want you. And so this younger brother takes the father's stuff, his inheritance, and he goes away and he squanders all of his inheritance in things that he will inevitably regret. Pretty sure that he ended up in Panama City Beach for spring break, and after many nights of doing things that he'd rather not remember, he feels empty, and he feels hollow, and he feels filthy, and he feels ashamed. And lying there alone, the boy realizes that his dad was right all along, and that his father had simply been protecting him from himself, and so he goes home. You probably know the story. The father had been watching the horizon for his young son, and when he sees his young son in the distance, he doesn't wait for him to come the rest of the way. The father hikes up his robes and runs to his boy. All is forgiven. Everything is restored, and a celebration ensues. Meanwhile, the older brother in the story has been dutifully working for his father. He's been obedient but when he hears that his little brother is home and that his father has welcomed him, he becomes angry and refuses to go into the party. So his dad goes out to him, the older brother that is, and begs him to come in. But the older brother still says no. His response reveals that he hasn't been faithful to his father because he loves him, but rather because of what he could get from his father. Like the little brother, he wanted the rewards of the father, but not a relationship with him. Both were running and hiding from the father in very different ways. The younger brother took his inheritance and ran away while the older brother stuck around but tried to keep his father at bay through his goodness. Jesus' point in the story was that both the younger brother and the older brother, they're both hiding from God. They're both far away from him. They're just using different tactics. Some of us overtly run away and hide from God. We basically say, I want everything that you've created, but I don't want you. Others of us try to hide behind our goodness as a bribe to an angry deity, but both strategies reveal that we don't trust God's goodness to us. We're scared of him. Like Eve, we're not quite sure that God can be trusted. What I don't want you to miss, however, is the father in this story. He could have rightfully punished both sons. What the younger brother did was massively offensive. I wish you were dead. Just go ahead and give me my inheritance now, and I'm out of here. But it's equally offensive for the older brother to not come in and celebrate. And then when his dad came and said, Come on inside, the older brother still said, No. He could have punished both boys. But instead, we see that he runs to the younger brother in his brokenness and he offers full and immediate restoration. And he goes out to the older brother in his anger and pleads with him to come to the feast. The father is good. The Father can be trusted. The Father comes to offer forgiveness and mercy and grace. The Father loves us. Now, I realize this passage, Genesis 3, has been, to be fair, a little depressing, and frankly, it should be. The effects of Adam and Eve's sin are very deep, and they're very wide, You can slice and dice this passage in any number of other ways to demonstrate just how completely our humanity has been corrupted and how that corruption has led to both suffering and malevolence, to genocide, to racism, to divorce, to abuse, to suicide, to isolation, to sickness, and to death. But there actually is good news. Genesis 3 is the beginning of the story, but the end is actually found in the book of Revelation. And at the end of Revelation, Revelation 21, we see that there is a happy ending. Beginning in verse three, "'And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, "'Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. "'The spiritual separation is undone. "'He will dwell with them, and they will be his people, "'and God himself will be with them as their God. "'He will wipe away every tear from their eyes.'" And death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. And he who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. Jesus inaugurated this process 2,000 years ago. He came to undo the effects of the fall. He came to make all things new. Let's take a moment, let's pray. Father, I thank you for your word. And Father, though there was clearly lots and lots of bad news in this passage today of um, psychological brokenness, physical brokenness, vocational brokenness, spiritual brokenness, Father, all these ways in which sin has corrupted the nooks and the crannies of our humanity. Father, though that's true, I thank you, Father, that the rest of the Bible is a story of your son Jesus coming to seek and to save those who are lost, those who are separated, those who are disintegrating. And Father, I thank you that Revelation makes it clear that the very end of the story is that all of that brokenness will be healed, that all of the crookedness will be made straight, Father, that you are making all things new. We pray that, Father, we would believe that today and that we would find our hope in you, our good Father. In Jesus' name we pray.